So a couple weeks ago, I, I, was, uh, I was a team leader, and I, I walked upstairs uh, to give communion to uh, the, the children's class that Jeremiah teaches. And I, as I stood there, I could hear him, and I said, you know, he, he's talking about some important stuff. Uh, so I, I stood outside to wait until he was finished so I didn't interrupt him. And, and I heard him ask the, the kids some questions. He asked them, he said, you know, if I sold everything that I own, gave all of that money to the church, would I go to heaven? And the kids answered, they said, no. He said, what about if I clean the whole church? I mow the grass. I cook the meals on Wednesday nights. Would I go to heaven? The kids said, no. He says, what if I became a full-time missionary and went to Haiti? Would I go to heaven? They said, no. Jeremiah asked him, he said, what if I led a good life, I treat people right, and I obeyed all of the Ten Commandments? Would I go to heaven? And they said, no. And he says, well, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And this one little kid in the back goes, well, you have to be dead. So, um, and there's some truth to that. Because unless Jesus returns, we will all die someday. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So that is ultimately the most important question that any of us will ever answer is how do I get to heaven? <clears throat> the good news is that Jesus came to give us that way. We all know John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse we often overlook but I think is equally important. It says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So as we come to today's passage, Jesus has some pretty poignant words about how a person gets to heaven. And the title of the sermon is a pseudo-faith. And we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. And I'll read those for us now. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their faith. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not a real feel-good passage. You know, when Dennis asked me, I, I committed to it uh, before I knew what, what this, the topic was, and, and I remember grabbing a bulletin and looking ahead and thinking, wow, that, that's not a real feel-good passage. Um, it's a passage I've been familiar with for you know, most of my adult life for sure, but truthfully, it's one that until the past several weeks, I'd never spent any time truly studying and, and really just praying about because it's, it's not. The, the words, depart from me, I never knew you from Jesus, are terrifying, and they should be. Um, it's not something that, that we ever want to think about. For any of us as believers, if the words, depart from me, I never knew you, don't cause us to pause and do some self-reflection, we probably need to pause and do some self-reflection. Um, so let's, let's get into the text. Uh, if any of you have, have ever heard me teach Sunday school, um, you know that I'm a history major. I, I believe that we best understand the Word of God when we understand the history and the cultural context behind it. Um, we've spent the last, I think this is the eighth week, studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so let's talk about it. The Sermon on the Mount, this likely... Uh, is pretty early in Jesus' ministry. We don't know exactly when. You know, they did not record the Bible with dates and times, but we know this is early in Jesus' ministry. Most scholars probably think it's somewhere in the first six to nine months of Jesus' ministry. So far, he's been baptized by John. He's called a lot of his disciples, but he has not called all of them. He's turned water to wine. That's recorded in the book of John. He's been visited by Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees. He's traveled to Samaria. He's had his encounter with the woman at the well. And to people in Samaria, he's declared himself the Messiah. He's healed a lot of people. He's cast out demons. And he's got quite a following. Word of Jesus has spread, word of his miracles has spread, word of his teaching has spread. But for the most part, up until this point, Jesus' teaching has been private. It's been to smaller groups. Um, he's not really preached a big sermon to, to large groups. So we come to the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying for the past, as I said, eight weeks, I believe. Uh, but we don't know how many people were there. Um, there are some biblical scholars that say there were as many as maybe twenty to 30,000 people there. I don't know how many were there, but we certainly know that it was the largest crowd that had ever heard Jesus teach. Um, we know that we can take from the Bible that it's very likely that there were people who traveled for several days to hear him. We have other examples of that in the Bible. So we have reason to, to believe with some confidence that there were people at the Sermon on the Mount 
who had traveled several days to hear him. But whether it was 2,000 people or 30,000, there were a lot of people who heard this. Now we can read Matthew's chapter five, six, and Matthew chapters five, six, and seven in several minutes. If we sit down to read it, it's going to take us maybe ten minutes, twelve minutes to read at the most. But what we do know too is Jesus preached much longer than that. The sermon lasted a lot longer. There are some biblical historians who think that Jesus may have preached the Sermon on the Mount over several days. But regardless of whether it were several days, we know that he preached for at least a couple of hours. Um, what we have here is not word for word what Jesus said. That was not the cultural context in which they recorded history. But we do know that it's his longest recorded sermon. And we can, because of Scripture, have great confidence that the words that we read are the essence of God's message to us. In John chapter 21, the Apostle John closes his gospel by saying, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain all of the books that would be written. So Jesus preached for at a minimum several hours. We have the essence of it. We can also be certain because of Scripture that what we have is what God wanted us to have. John also writes earlier in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said. So we know that what we read in the Sermon on the Mount is God's message to us, and we can have confidence in that. But Jesus preached, again, for a long time, okay? The Sermon on the Mount laid the foundation. It was early in his ministry. It lays the foundation for following God. It lays the foundation for the Christian life. It's a roadmap in how followers of Jesus are supposed to live. And we've heard about that, starting with Mark about eight weeks ago and coming through the last several weeks. We've learned about the blessed life, godly influence, true holiness, remaining true, having a godly motive. We've learned about worrying, respecting others, and having a real faith. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us to be peacemakers, to be salt and light, teaches us that holiness is about the heart, teaches us that if we hate our brother, it's the same as murder, that if we look upon a woman lustfully, it's the same as adultery. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies. He gives us instruction on prayer and on fasting, gives us instruction not to worry, to trust God, and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. So Jesus has spent hours, if not days, laying the foundation for his ministry. He spent all of this time saying, this is how you follow God. This is how you live the life I want you to live. 
And you know, Mark ends all of his sermons with a connection point. Well, this, today's message is not the connection point. Next week is Jesus' connection point in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is a crescendo. If we ask Bob or any of these gentlemen singing, Joel, if we talk to Chris, he would tell you that in music you have a crescendo leading to the end where it starts to get louder and it builds to the end, it builds to the climax. And in today's passage, Jesus is building to the climax. He is building to his connection point. It's the big finish. He's told his followers and those who want to be his followers how to live. And now he's approaching the big finale. Again, this is not it, but he's getting there. We're in the crescendo. And what does he say after a long sermon of how to live? He says that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few find it. He says that trees do that do not bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. And he says that some of those who follow him, to those he will say at the day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. So up until this point, the Sermon on the Mount has been pretty straightforward. There's not much that's controversial, not much that's challenging. But now... As Jesus approaches the end of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the crescendo begins to build, and he says, you can do everything I've just said. You can follow these teachings and still go to hell. He said, you can do, I've, I've taught for hours, and you can do all of that and still go to hell. Again, if that does not cause each of us to pause and do some self-reflection, we need to do some pause and self-reflection. So he told us how to live on the earth. Now he's going to tell us how to live eternally. And a pseudo-faith won't cut it. So we look in the passage, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few find it. So point number one. There are many ways to get to hell. Okay. The, ne the next slide there is something I've seen uh, if they have it. Uh, the fact that there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven should tell us something about anticipated traffic, okay? A little reference to, to some music, but there are many ways to get to hell. There are 8 billion, roughly, people in the world. A little over 25% of those claim to be Christians. A little over 2 billion, about 2.2 billion. So less than 25% of the people in the world even claim to be Christians, or just more than 25%. There's over 4,000 religions in the world. They all claim to have the answer to eternal life, but only one does. Almost all religions teach you to be good. 
most religions, or at least many religions, acknowledge Jesus and his teachings. But there's only one that teaches us the way to heaven. The number of truly evil people in this world, truly evil, is pretty small. But there's only one way to heaven. In 2020, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University did a survey of U.S. adults. 48% affirmed the statement that says, a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. 48% said that. 63% said that having faith matters more than which faith you have. In today's passage, Jesus says that's not true. There are a lot of ways to get to hell. So as we go through our text, it says a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So our second point, to evaluate the fruit, we have to look beyond the surface. Okay. Judas spent three and a half years with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He prayed with Jesus. Yet in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus called him a devil. And we know that Judas betrayed Jesus. There are a lot of people in this world who do a lot of good. They donate millions of dollars, thousands of dollars. They serve others. They go overseas. They build houses for people. And even people who don't believe in Jesus, most of them will tell you that if you live your life according to the Sermon on the Mount... You're a good person. Okay? We have to evaluate the fruit and the reasons behind it. In today's text, there are people who appear to do the work of Jesus, yet he said, depart from me. Fruit can be rotten on the inside and look fine on the outside. So the litmus test for it Again, I believe the scripture teaches us that if we are doing good, that the good Jesus is talking about, that the fruit Jesus is talking about points people to Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle writes, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. And John 14, verses 23 and 24 say, And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So if we have a true faith, 
we will be known by our love for others. And the fruit of our faith will be an evident love for Jesus. Simply doing good is not indicative of a true faith. It's, it's beyond the surface. Good works by themselves does not mean we have faith in Jesus. We know that God said when he was talking about King David, it says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The evidence of our fruit is not just in the good we do, but do we point people to Jesus? In our passage today in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So what is the will of God? That's a, probably a sermon series within itself, but as its core, the will of God is that we trust in Jesus for our salvation. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise them up on the last day. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And Peter says in chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God's will, as Jesus talks about it in our passage today, is for everyone to be saved. God's will is for you to be saved. So when we talk about doing God's will, that's step number one. We move on in our text to verse 22. Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? In this passage, Jesus is talking about people who have a pseudo-faith. You see, their faith is in their works. Their faith is not in Jesus. It's in what they did. It's in their works. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. And they did these things. Judas did these things. Okay, but their faith was in their works. It was not in Jesus. And that is why he says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We don't boast in our works. We boast in the fact that we know Jesus. Jesus, in verse 22, when he says, or in verse 23, when he says, depart from me, he's talking about the people who were trusting in their works. They were trusting in all that they did for Jesus. But they weren't trusting in Jesus. So a pseudo-faith is faith in anything other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that's where our salvation lies. It lies in his finished work. So if we circle back to the beginning, upstairs with Jeremiah, what do we have to do to get to heaven? I'll give you three scriptures, and there's many, but I'll give you three. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And Matthew 26, 28 says this, Jesus says, This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that brings us to our connection point. The gate is small and narrow that leads to eternal life, but it is covered in the blood of Jesus. And that is good news for us because we can't earn our way to heaven. It doesn't matter if we follow everything in the Sermon on the Mount, everything in the Ten Commandments. If our trust is in that, we may hear those words that say, depart from me, I never knew you. And I can't think of any more terrifying words than those. 